G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. And today we're going to get all mythological. Yeah, that's right, Chris. Today I just wanted to talk about flood stories from the ancient Near East. There is a stream of thought dying a slow and painful death in the academy, assuming that the flood narrative, as it appears in Genesis, is a composition of earlier source material from two distinct authors. And typically, it proposes that these different authors had different flood stories in mind when they wrote. The source-critical approach, as it's called, has become the mainstream understanding of the flood narrative's compositional history or how it came about. It's a view that is rarely challenged in academic circles, but more and more scholars are coming around to discover that the emperor is indeed buck naked. Uh, yes, there is uh, definitely a place for a critical approach to scripture, but we do need to, to keep things in the proper perspective, don't we? We certainly do, mate. What I want to do today is read some of this alleged source material, and then we can start talking about how biblical authors may have engaged with it or not. Uh, But to get started, we will read the biblical flood account to get it fresh in our minds, and that means reading Genesis chapters 6 through 9, beginning as we do in 5.32 and ending at 9.17. So we're going to do that now. I'm reading from the NIV. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, 
and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than fifteen cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for a hundred and fifty days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down, and on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth, so it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out, together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease.
Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply upon the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. All right, so we'll, we'll leave it there without going into the whole story of Noah versus Ham and Canaan. Yeah, good idea. There might be kids listening. Uh, what you might have noticed while we've been going through this reading is the amount of repetition. Uh, certain phrases and ideas that come up again and again uh, examples would be the repeated use of numbers such as 40 and 7. and There's lots more, but we'll talk about that later. Just something to think about. Uh, anyway, that's enough of that. Now, I'm going to read for you the third part, the flood bit of the Atrahasis epic. And after that, we're going to read Gilgamesh. But uh, we're going to read Atrahasis first because it is, as far as we know, the oldest of all flood stories from the ancient Near East. Atrahasis is the Akkadian name for the Sumerian Ziusudra, last king before the flood according to some versions of the Sumerian king list, but not the earliest or most authoritative versions. So he comes from a place called Shurapak, which, if you're familiar with the Sumerian king list, is the last place where the kingship resided before the flood. But he's not just a king, he's also a priest. Back when we were studying Genesis 5, we noted that the priestly function of kings was important. This flood story is going to come across quite different to the biblical one in many respects, but it's going to establish the building blocks of a tradition that develops over time, and that tradition includes the addition of Ziasudra to late versions of the Sumerian king list, where the early versions don't have him included. In fact, they don't even have a flood. What? No flood story? How could they not include that? I mean, that's a pretty big detail to leave out, like all of a sudden somebody remembers one day, oh yeah, the flood, that's right, remember the flood? Yeah, that happened, didn't it? Let's uh, let's put that in the story. Oh, yeah, that's right. I can't believe we've been telling that story for a thousand years and no one remembered the flood. Yeah, uh, what's interesting is that our protagonist is not actually depicted as a king at all, but he's shown to be a priest. And that, in my mind, demonstrates that the priority of the kingship over priesthood, as we discussed on previous episodes where we looked at the myth of sheep and grain, is a late fabrication designed to uphold the modern kingship at the time of the Middle Babylonian period, and it didn't actually hold the same priority back in the day. This is why the flood wasn't in the early king lists. If you're going to change the flood hero from a priest into a king, then you need to add him to the list. Uh, right, yes, that, uh, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, so here's one translation of the Atrahasis epic, which is compiled from a variety of partial original sources. This is uh, beginning in Tablet 3, which unfortunately has a little bit missing from the very start of it. And where we pick it up is where Atrahasis, or the uh, the Akkadian Noah, if you like, uh, is talking to 
Enki, the, uh, his god. And it says this, Atrahasis made his voice heard and spoke to his master, indicate to me the meaning of the dream. Let me find out its portent. Enki made his voice heard and spoke to his servant. You say I should find out in bed? Make sure you attend to the message I shall tell you. Wall, listen constantly to me. Read Hut, make sure you attend to all my words. Dismantle the house, build a boat, reject possessions and save living things. The boat that you build, and then we have a big gap in the text. And when it picks up again, the boat building instructions continue. Roof it like the Apsu, so that the sun cannot see inside it. Make upper decks and lower decks. The tackle must be very strong, the bitumen strong to give strength. I shall make rain fall on you here. A wealth of birds, a hamper of fish. He opened the sand clock and filled it. He told him the sand needed for the flood was seven nights worth. And that's meant to mean that he's got a week to prepare. Atrahasis received the message. He gathered the elders at his door. Atrahasis made his voice heard and spoke to the elders. My God is out of favour with your God. Enki and Elil have become angry with each other. They have driven me out of my house. Since I always stand in awe of Enki, he told me of this matter. I can no longer stay in. I cannot set my foot on Elil's territory again. I must go down to the Apsu and stay with my God. This is what he told me. There's another gap in the text here, and then it says, starts talking about all the things that people bring for the construction of the ark. The carpenter brought his axe. The reed worker brought his stone. A child brought bitumen. The poor fetched what was needed. And then there's all these partial bits where the tablet's damaged. Everything there was, pure ones, fat ones. He selected and put on board the birds that fly in the sky, cattle of Shakan, wild animals of open country he put on board. He invited his people to a feast. He put his family on board. They were eating, they were drinking. But he went in and out could not stay still or rest on his haunches. His heart was breaking, and he was vomiting bile. The face of the weather changed. A dad bellowed from the clouds. When Atrahasis heard his noise, bitumen was brought, and he sealed his door. While he was closing up his door, a dad kept bellowing from the clouds. The winds were raging even as he went up and cut through the rope. He released the boat. There's a few lines missing, and... Then it comes back to describe the gods making the storm happen. Anzu was tearing at the sky with his talons. He broke. The flood came out. The Kazuzu weapon went against the people like an army. No one could see anyone else. They could not be recognized in the catastrophe. The flood roared like a bull, like a wild ass screaming. The winds howled. The darkness was total. There was no sun. Anu went berserk, the gods, his sons before him. As for Nintu, the great mistress, her lips became encrusted with rhyme. The great gods, the Anuna, stayed parched and famished. The goddess watched and wept, midwife of the gods, wise mummy. However could I, in the assembly of gods, have ordered such destruction with them? Elil was strong enough to give a wicked order. Like Tiruru, he ought to have cancelled that wicked order. I heard their cry leveled at me, against myself, against my person. Beyond my control, my offspring have become like white sheep. As for me, how am I to live in a house of bereavement? My noise has turned to silence. Could I go away up to the sky and live as in a cloister? What was Anu's intention as decision-maker? It was his command that the gods his sons obeyed. He who did not deliberate but sent the flood. He who gathered the people to catastrophe. There's another gap in the text here. Nintu was wailing. Would a true father have given birth to the rolling sea so that they could clog the river like dragonflies? They are washed up like a raft on a bank. They are washed up like a raft on a bank in open country. I have seen and wept over them. Shall I ever finish weeping for them? She wept. She gave vent to her feelings. Nintu wept and fueled her passions. The gods wept with her for the country. She was sated with grief. She longed for beer in vain. Where she sat weeping, there the great gods sat too, but like sheep they could only fill their windpipes with bleating. Thirsty as they were, their lips discharged only the rhyme of famine. 
For seven days and seven nights, the torrent, storm and flood came on. The big gap in the text here. We're now at the end of the flood where Atrahasis makes an offering to the gods. The gods smelt the fragrance, gathered like flies over the offering. When they had eaten the offering, Nintu got up and blamed them all. Whatever came over Anu who makes the decisions? Did Elil dare to come for the smoke offering? Those two who did not deliberate but sent the flood, gathered the people to catastrophe? You agreed the destruction. Now their bright faces are dark forever. Then she went up to the big flies which Anu had made and declared before the gods, His grief is mine, my destiny goes with his. He must deliver me from evil and appease me. Let me go out in the morning. Let these flies be the lapis lazuli of my necklace, by which I may remember it daily, forever. The warrior Elil spotted the boat and was furious with the Ajiji. We, the great Anuna, all of us, agreed together on an oath. No form of life should have escaped. How did any man survive the catastrophe? Anu made his voice heard and spoke to the warrior Elil. Who but Enki would do this? He made sure that the reed hut disclosed the order. Enki made his voice heard and spoke to the great gods. I did it in defiance of you. I made sure life was preserved. There's more text missing here. Exact your punishment from the sinner and whoever contradicts your order. More text missing. I've given vent to my feelings. Elil made his voice heard and spoke to far-sighted Enki. Come, summon Nintu, the womb goddess. Confer with each other in the assembly. Enki made his voice heard and spoke to the womb goddess Nintu. You are the womb goddess who decrees destinies. Let there be one third of the people among the people, the woman who gives birth, yet does not give birth successfully. Let there be the Pashitu demon among the people to snatch the baby from its mother's lap. Establish Ugbabtu, Entu, Egishtu women. They shall be taboo and thus control childbirth. Some more missing text here. How we sent the flood, but a man survived the catastrophe. You are the counsellor of the gods. On your orders I created conflict. Let the Ajiji listen to this song in order to praise you and let them record your greatness. I shall sing of the flood to all people. Listen. The end. Okay, that's the end of the tablet. And uh, it's interesting. It's actually signed by the, the scribe who, who wrote the, the tablet. And his name is Ipikaye. I keep thinking of Bruce Willis every time I see that. Anyway, uh, that was a, a partial reconstruction of tablet three of Atrahasis which describes the flood story from one of its earliest sources. So I noticed that there were some correspondences with the biblical flood story, although not, not really a great deal. Does that mean the Noah story might have more in common with later flood traditions that came after this one? Yeah, that's a good question, Chris. But before I answer it, I want to share with you a special reading from a translation of a text that was recently rediscovered and translated by Irving Finkel. I think I've talked about this before. Uh, the Ark Tablet provides a missing piece of the flood story in Akkadian from roughly 1750 BC, and it's pretty special because it gives an extraordinary amount of detail concerning the construction of the Ark, which you might have noticed doesn't get much attention in the story we just read. And I think the reason for the lack of details there is perhaps that this part of the early tradition may have become lost at some stage, which would account for it being missing from later stories coming along based on the original. So here's Irving Finkel's translation of the Ark Tablet. Wall, wall, read wall, read wall. Atrahasis, pay attention to my advice that you may live forever. Destroy your house, build a boat, spurn property and save life. Draw out the boat that you will make on a circular plan. Let her length and breadth be equal. Let her floor area be one field. Let her sides be one nindan high. You saw canoe ropes and ashlu rushes for a coracle before. Let someone else twist the fronds and palm fibre for you. It will surely consume 14,430 sutu. I set in place 30 ribs, which were one parsectu vessel thick, 10 nindan long. I set up 3,600 stanchions within her which were half a parsectu vessel thick, half a nindan high. I constructed her cabins above and below. I apportioned one finger of bitumen for her outsides. I apportioned one finger of bitumen for her interior. 
I had already poured out one finger of bitumen onto her cabins. I caused the kilns to be loaded with 28,800 sutu of kupru bitumen, and I poured 3,600 sutu of itu bitumen within. The bitumen did not come to the surface, literally up to me, so I added five fingers of lard. I ordered the kilns to be loaded in equal measure with tamarisk wood and stalks. I completed the mixture. Now on the lower edge of the tablet, there's only parts of two of the last four lines can be uh, understood. It says, going between her ribs, the itu bitumen. Now, you turn over to the other side of the tablet, which is more badly damaged, unfortunately. I applied the outside kupru bitumen from the kilns out of the 120 gur measures which the workmen had put to one side. I lay myself down something of rejoicing. My kith and kin went into the boat. Joyful something of my in-laws and the porter with something and something. They ate and drank their fill. As for me, there was no word in my heart and something of my lips. I slept with difficulty. I went up on the roof and prayed to the moon god Sin, my lord. Let my heartbreak be extinguished. Do you not disappear? Something darkness into my something. Seen from his throne swore as to annihilation and desolation on the darkened day to come. But the wild animals from the steppe, two by two, the boat they did enter. I had something five of beer, something. They were transporting 11 or 12 something, three measures of shikboom, one third measure of fodder and kurdinu plant. I ordered several times a one-finger layer of lard for the gurmadu roller out of the 30 gur which the workmen had put to one side. When I shall have gone into the boat, cork the frame of her door. And that's the end of the tablet. You could definitely see some more things that line up with the biblical flood story in that tablet. It's got the animals going in two by two. It's got the bitumen coating, but the ark is round. What is up with that? Yeah, that's an interesting feature because uh, we're going to read Gilgamesh next and you kind of have to read between the lines because on face value, it looks like we're going to see a square arc in, in Gilgamesh, actually a giant cube if you want to be literal about it. Uh, now, I'm not generally a fan of trying to harmonise different texts, but sometimes it helps and I think we'll find that certain details of the arc are going to be quite compatible and others will be different. But there's a lot more going on than just the construction of the Ark. There's a whole bunch of story elements that are going to be a lot more familiar to us as Bible readers, which were absent in the Atrahasis. Let's see what we notice as we go through this reading of Gilgamesh, Tablet 11. The name of Zyasudra does not appear, although in this translation it does preserve Atrahasis at one point. Uh, but for the most part, the protagonist of the flood story is called Utnapishtim. It means something like he who found life or something like that. Uh, that will be explained in the story. So here is Gilgamesh, Tablet 11. Gilgamesh spoke to Utnapishtim the faraway. I have been looking at you, but your appearance is not strange. You are like me. You yourself are not different. You are like me. My mind was resolved to fight with you, but instead my arm lies useless over you. Tell me, how is it that you stand in the assembly of the gods and have found life? Udnapishtim spoke to Gilgamesh, saying, I will reveal to you, Gilgamesh, a thing that is hidden, a secret of the gods, I will tell you. Shurapak, a city that you surely know, situated on the banks of the Euphrates. That city was very old and there were gods inside it. The hearts of the great gods moved them to inflict the flood. Their father Anu uttered the oath of secrecy. Valiant Enlil was their advisor. Ninurta was their chamberlain. Enugi was their minister of canals. Ea, the clever prince, was under oath with them, so he repeated their talk to the Reed House. Reed House, Reed House, wall, wall, O man of Shurupak, son of Ubatutu, tear down the house and build a boat. Abandon wealth and seek living beings. Spurn possessions and keep alive living beings. Make all living beings go up into the boat. The boat which you are to build, its dimensions must measure equal to each other. Its length must correspond to its width. Roof it over like the Apsu. I understood and spoke to my lord ear. My lord, thus is the command which you have uttered. I will heed and will do it. But what shall I answer the city, the populace and the elders? Ear spoke, commanding me his servant. You, well then, this is what you must say to them. It appears that Enlil is rejecting me, so I cannot reside in your city, nor set foot on Enlil's earth. 
I will go down to the Apsu to live with my Lord Ear, and upon you he will rain down abundance, a profusion of fowl, myriad fishes. He will bring to you a harvest of wealth. In the morning he will let loaves of bread shower down, and in the evening a rain of wheat. Just as dawn began to glow, the land assembled around me. The carpenter carried his hatchet, the reed worker carried his flattening stone, the men, the child carried the pitch, the weak brought whatever else was needed. On the fifth day I laid out her exterior. It was a field in area, its walls were each ten times twelve cubits in height. The sides of its top were of equal length, ten times twelve cubits each. I laid out its interior structure and drew a picture of it. I provided it with six decks, thus dividing it into seven levels. The inside of it I divided into nine compartments. I drove plugs to keep out water in its middle part. I saw to the punting poles and laid in what was necessary. Three times 3,600 units of raw bitumen I poured into the bitumen kiln. Three times 3,600 units of pitch into it. There were three times 3,600 porters of casks who carried vegetable oil. Apart from the 3,600 units of oil which they consumed, and two times 3,600 units of oil which the boatmen stored away. I butchered oxen for the meat, and day upon day I slaughtered sheep. I gave the workmen ale, beer, oil and wine as if it were river water, so they could make a party like the New Year's festival, and I set my hand to the oiling. The boat was finished by sunset. The launching was very difficult. They had to keep carrying a runway of poles front to back until two-thirds of it had gone into the water. Whatever I had, I loaded on it. Whatever silver I had, I loaded on it. Whatever gold I had, I loaded on it. All the living beings that I had, I loaded on it. I had all my kith and kin go up into the boat. All the beasts and animals of the field and the craftsmen I had go up. Shamash had set a stated time. In the morning, I will let loaves of bread shower down, and in the evening, a rain of wheat. Go inside the boat. Seal the entry. That stated time had arrived. In the morning he let loaves of bread shower down, and in the evening a rain of wheat. I watched the appearance of the weather. The weather was frightful to behold. I went into the boat and sealed the entry. For the caulking of the boat, to Pazura Muri the boatman, I gave the palace together with its contents. Just as dawn began to glow, there arose from the horizon a black cloud. Adad rumbled inside of it. Before him went Shalat and Hanish. Heralds going over mountain and land. Eregal pulled out the mooring poles. Forth went Ninurta and made the dikes overflow. The Anunnaki lifted up the torches, setting the land ablaze with their flare. Stunned shock over Adad's deeds overtook the heavens and turned to blackness all that had been light. The land shattered like a pot. All day long the south wind blew, blowing fast, submerging the mountain in water, overwhelming the people like an attack. No one could see his fellow, they could not recognise each other in the torrent. The gods were frightened by the flood and retreated, ascending to the heaven of Anu. The gods were cowering like dogs, crouching by the outer wall. Ishtar shrieked like a woman in childbirth. The sweet-voiced mistress of the gods wailed. The olden days have alas turned to clay because I said evil things in the assembly of the gods. How could I say evil things in the assembly of the gods, ordering a catastrophe to destroy my people? No sooner have I given birth to my dear people than they fill the sea like so many fish. The gods, those of the Anunnaki, were weeping with her. The gods humbly sat weeping, sobbing with grief, their lips burning, parched with thirst. Six days and seven nights came the wind and flood, the storm flattening the land. When the seventh day arrived, the storm was pounding. The flood was a war, struggling with itself like a woman writhing in labour. The sea calmed, fell still. The whirlwind and flood stopped up. I looked around all day long. Quiet had set in, and all the human beings had turned to clay. The terrain was as flat as a roof. I opened a vent, and fresh air, daylight, fell upon the side of my nose. I fell to my knees and sat weeping, tears streaming down the side of my nose. I looked around for coastlines in the expanse of the sea, and at twelve leagues there emerged a region of land. On Mount Nimush the boat lodged firm. Mount Nimush held the boat, allowing no sway. One day and a second, Mount Nimush held the boat, allowing no sway. A third day, a fourth, 
Mount Nimush held the boat, allowing no sway. A fifth day, a sixth, Mount Nimush held the boat, allowing no sway. When a seventh day arrived, I sent forth a dove and released it. The dove went off, but came back to me. No perch was visible, so it circled back to me. I sent forth a swallow and released it. The swallow went off, but came back to me. No perch was visible, so it circled back to me. I sent forth a raven and released it. The raven went off and saw the waters slither back. It eats, it scratches, it bobs, but does not circle back to me. Then I sent out everything in all directions and sacrificed a sheep. I offered incense in front of the mountain ziggurat. Seven and seven cult vessels I put in place, and into the fire underneath or into their bowls I poured reeds, cedar, and myrtle. The gods smelled the savour, the gods smelled the sweet savour, and collected like flies over a sheep sacrifice. Just then, Melatili arrived. She lifted up the large flies, or beads, which Anu had made for his enjoyment. You gods, as surely as I shall not forget this lapis lazuli around my neck, may I be mindful of these days and never forget them. The gods may come to the incense offering, but Enlil may not come to the incense offering. Because without considering, he brought about the flood and consigned my people to annihilation. Just then, Enlil arrived. He saw the boat and became furious. He was filled with rage at the Ajiji gods. Where did a living being escape? No man was to survive the annihilation. Ninurta spoke to valiant Enlil, saying, Who else but Ea could devise such a thing? It is Ea who knows every machination. La spoke to valiant Enlil, saying, It is yours, O valiant one, who is the sage of the gods. How? How could you bring about a flood without consideration? Charge the violation to the violator. Charge the offence to the offender. But be compassionate, lest mankind be cut off. Be patient, lest they be killed. Instead of your bringing on the flood... Would that a lion had appeared to diminish the people. Instead of your bringing on the flood, would that a wolf had appeared to diminish the people. Instead of your bringing on the flood, would that famine had occurred to slay the land. Instead of your bringing on the flood, would that pestilent error had appeared to ravage the land. It was not I who revealed the secret of the great gods. I only made a dream appear to Atrahasis, and thus he heard the secret of the gods. Now then, the deliberation should be about him. Enlil went up inside the boat, and grasping my hand, made me go up. He had my wife go up and kneel by my side. He touched our forehead, and standing between us, he blessed us. Previously, Utnapishtim was a human being, but now let Utnapishtim and his wife become like us, the gods. Let Utnapishtim reside far away at the mouth of the rivers. They took us far away and settled us at the mouth of the rivers. Alright, I'm going to leave that reading there. I want to bring to your attention once again the uh, repetition that occurs in these stories. It's not uncommon to find details getting mentioned more than once. There's also a lot of redundancies in the text. Yeah, isn't that a bit redundant? It is, but so is saying a bit redundant when you could have just said redundant. Fair enough. We've got to keep in mind that these stories are written to be read aloud and memorised and repeated. Repetition is an important tool in that process, and it's also a normal element that you expect to find in poetic literature. Probably the thing that stood out the most for our audience would be the mention of the different birds and the similarities to the biblical story. And what was probably the weirdest bit was the discussion around the flies at the end. I don't know if you've been outside much lately, Chris, but the flies have been an absolute plague in this part of the world over the last week or so. We've had a lot of wind blowing in from the east and bringing all these nasty little flies in from the bush and they're horrible little things that just want to be all over your face all the time. I'm told that in other parts of the world this isn't a problem, but we just don't think very highly of flies. We certainly do not. So uh, what's the go with the flies in the flood story? You don't get those in the Bible. I think what's going on there is you're supposed to think of flies in connection with ornamental jewellery. And I realise that's never going to work in our modern understanding. Hear me out on this. You ever see those big blue flies that have colours on them? They, they might be blue or green or yellow. Yeah, I've certainly seen those. We call them uh, blue bottle flies, don't we? Right, and we do that because we see the colour of stained glass in the colours on these flies. And if they weren't on these absolutely disgusting little miniature beasts of pestilence, the colours themselves are actually quite nice. So the idea is that the colours of the flies represent the colours of gemstones. They haven't invented stained glass yet. So you get this idea of a necklace made of flies. It's, it's pretty stones with their shiny and diverse colours. Can you think of anything else that has a diverse range of pretty colours that might have something to do with the flood story? 
Oh, no. You're not talking about the rainbow, are you? Oh, yes, I am. That is weird, man. And I'm not going to lie, it's a bit disturbing. Gross, really. It's just it's just wrong. So what's the connection there? How's that supposed to work? Anyway, these aren't questions I'm planning on answering today, but we'll get there. Oh, boy. We will. We're going to hit all this cool stuff as we go through the biblical flood story. But for this episode, I just wanted our audience to get a feel for these stories so we can talk about source criticism next time. All right. Well, it sounds like it's time for a Q&A then. Let's answer some giant questions. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Warren asked about Isaiah 14. Who is the man here? What does it mean? Yeah, that's a really good question, Warren. I've been thinking about this for a while now. Thanks for sending that in. Uh, Of course, the first thing I'm going to say is let's get some context and read the whole passage. So I'm going to read from Isaiah 14, verse 1. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place, and Israel will take possession of the nations and make them male and female servants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. On the day the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil and from the harsh labor forced on you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has come to an end, how his fury has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. All the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Even the junipers and the cedars of Lebanon gloat over you and say, Now that you have been laid low, no one comes to cut us down. The realm of the dead below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. All those who were leaders in the world, it makes them rise from their thrones. All those who were kings over the nations. They will all respond and they will say to you, You also have become weak as we are. You have become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities and would not let its captives go home? All the kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You are covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword. Those who descend to the stones of the pit. Like a corpse trampled underfoot, you will not join them in burial. For you have destroyed your land and killed your people. Let the offspring of the wicked never be mentioned again. Prepare a place to slaughter his children for the sins of their ancestors. They are not to rise to inherit the land and cover the earth with their cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord Almighty. I will wipe out Babylon's name and survivors, her offspring and descendants, declares the Lord. I will turn her into a place for owls and into swampland. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely, as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains, I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out and who can turn it back? All right, so that's as far as we're going to go there. Uh, What you might notice if you're paying careful attention to the ideas presented in this text is that there are a series of statements made and then one by one they get reversed. And that means we're looking at a chiastic poem. 
Some of you will be familiar with the concept of chiasm because I've written about it in my book. For those unfamiliar, we're talking about a kind of poem which introduces a situation, brings it to a climax, and then provides a resolution point by point to each of the issues that have been raised in the first half of the poem. This kind of poetry isn't concerned with rhyme, rhythm, and meter, but it is concerned with ideas presented in a problem and resolution sort of format. So that's the structure that we find between the second half of verse 4 and the end of verse 23 in this text. Now, it should be pretty clear from the introduction to this poem that it is intended as a taunt against the king of Babylon. Given that the poem describes Israel being taken captive and then returning from captivity, we can pretty confidently say that this is directed at Nebuchadnezzar. Some people have cast doubt on that because of the mention at the end of the poem of this entity known as the Assyrian. And again, for those who have read my book, you'll know already that the Assyrian is the name of a divine being who seems to be the primary adversary of God's people. It should be no struggle to envisage him as the power behind the actions of King Nebuchadnezzar. So identifying the person in question isn't really that difficult, but Warren really did raise an interesting question when he asked about the meaning of that question, is this the man? So a lot of what I'm going to share with you here is coming from some academic literature that I found on the topic, and you can look it up online. It's quite accessible for free. It's an article called Isaiah 14, 4b to 23, Ironic Reversal Through Concentric Structure and Mythic Illusion by Robert H. O'Connell. And this was published in Vetus Testamentum, Volume 38, from October 1988, uh, pages 407 to 418. Now, focusing on the chiastic structure of the poem, we have correspondences between the dead in verse 10 and the mortality of the man in verse 16. Bringing those together, in the central part of the poem, in verse 12, is the line, You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. It's those last few words that are especially important, and there's a lot going on here beyond what we see in English. The Hebrew, therefore, laid low the nations, is holesh Kaim, and a lot of people will have read that in a fairly straightforward fashion, but there's actually a bit of wordplay going on, because you can also read this from the original root form as it would have been written, so that it says, weakened, on your back. So you would read this as, you have been cast down to the earth, weakened, on your back which is what happens when you fall from a great height. And that's important because it reflects part of a very well-known story, which we were just talking about, which is the Epic of Gilgamesh. This is a literary allusion to the shock that Gilgamesh experiences when he discovers that Utnapishtim is just a man like him. In fact, there are an awful lot of parallels to the Epic of Gilgamesh in this poem here in Isaiah 14. I'm talking about visual imagery surrounding the concept of mortality, such as green shoots that get broken off, that kind of thing. And then we have ideas like the ambition of immortality and all that. But look at how clever this is. If you know the Gilgamesh story, then you know about his adventure into the Cedar Forest and his slaying of Humbaba. And what do we find right in the middle of this poem in Isaiah 14? The cedar trees are boasting that no one comes to cut them down. Seriously, this is an absolutely ingenious bit of writing. And it makes perfect sense that if you're going to cut down a Mesopotamian king in a poem designed to make a mockery of him, that you would use possibly the most well-known piece of Mesopotamian literature ever produced to do so. And that just makes it doubly humiliating because even the proud tradition and culture of the Babylonians is being turned against this Babylonian king. But it gets even better because this poem invokes even the Tower of Babel story from Genesis 11. It uses the same structure, touches on the same themes, including the supernatural powers behind the ambitions of the Mesopotamians, and once again addresses point by point the desire of a human king to achieve immortality in the context of great Mesopotamian cities and cultural achievements. It's absolutely brilliant. And the key thought here in all of this literature is the humanity of the people involved, as opposed to divinity. So whether it's Gilgamesh, Utnapishtim, or Nebuchadnezzar, the idea is that they're all faced with mortality. Only God can be God. And the man is always going to be the man. Yeah, we've been saying that for a while now on the podcast, haven't we? It's been a central theme pretty much every week, I reckon. Yeah, that's right, Chris, and it's going to continue as we get further into Genesis 6. Uh, thanks again to Warren for the question, and don't forget, listeners, you can send any questions you might have through the website, giantanswers.com. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant 
questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Great Forsaken, greatforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. And you could definitely see some more things that line up with the biblical... Oh, you're supposed to re-reading that. <laughs> I'm just talking over you. Your beard looks to be migrating south. More neck coverage than last time, or am I imagining that? Um, yeah, I don't know that. Um, well, you know, it grows all the time. Um, so yeah, as your uh, mo effort coming along, that's that's looking uh, mm. looking respectable. Yeah, well, then why am I not getting any respect? No, people have said a few things. <laughs> it's just it's quite light. It'd be good if it was a bit darker, so it would look a bit more plump and full and robust. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if it's going to get any more than this. Well, we shall I may see. Have peaked early. <laughs> we shall. We shall. Oh, it's all for a good cause. That is true. Well, I've tried to give blood twice uh, last Tried. Week. Yes, um, unsuccessful in the bruise to prove it, um, but that happens quite often. Um, so, yeah, five different people, uh, two different pricks uh-huh. and uh, no blood. I did wonder what you meant when you said you tried to give blood. I thought, what, they didn't want it or? Didn't find any in me. Changed your um, mind. No, I'm not going to. I couldn't part with it. I'm just going to keep this. No, it's just it's happened a few times over the last you know many years. It's just um, I mean they struggle to find a vein, and then when they do, it doesn't always um, pump as it should. Um, uh, they search, but yeah, in vain. Good one. There it is. Nice work.